Hi, everyone. From Impact Alpha Media, this is Returns on Investment, a show about the impact investing marketplace. Live on tape from New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the financial technology company LiquidNet. This week, we're featuring a conversation between David Bank, editor-in-chief of Impact Alpha, and Emily Stone. Emily is the co-founder and CEO of Maya Mountain Cacao and the Uncommon Cacao Group. Let's let Emily explain the impact that her social ventures are having on the world of chocolate. Hi, I'm David Bank. I'm here with Emily Stone, the CEO of Uncommon Cacao. Hi, David. How are you doing, Emily? Good, thanks. Um, so chocolate, you're, you're passionate about chocolate. Extremely. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's too rare, though. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, where did that start? Well, it actually goes back um, all the way to my childhood. When I was 10 years old, I wrote a cookbook called Chocolate Around the World. It was my first ever independent school project. I got to choose a topic, and I chose chocolate. Tell us about the situation in chocolate today in the world. Chocolate is in a really critical moment right now. There have been a lot of media reports uh, coming out over the last five years or so about some of the tragic situations in Africa, which produces about 70% of the world's cacao. By the way, cacao and cocoa are totally interchangeable, and I may use those words, uh, both of them, throughout this uh, interview. I was going to ask about that. (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll get to that. If you want, we can go deeper there. But but in any case, yeah, there are major issues in Africa, child labor, slavery on plantations, and the main cause of that is that Farmers are not being paid enough to produce cacao. At the same time, what's ironic is that there are also media reports saying that we're going to run out of chocolate, that there isn't enough cacao in the world to go around. And so there's a so, real imbalance here. So we've hit peak chocolate? We've hit peak chocolate. <laughs> you could say that, but, but usually you would imagine that in that kind of a scenario, we would be paying farmers more. Unfortunately, that's not the case. The reason for that is that the current supply chain, the commodity supply chain. Um, It's really based on speculative futures trading, is not based on the cost of production or the realities for these five million cacao farming families around the world. Okay, so you uh, combined your passion with chocolate with a passion for social justice and started looking at what could be done in the chocolate industry and what kinds of solutions did you explore? So I used to work in advocacy and did a lot of work with companies on their supply chain sustainability. And so I started working really through the fair trade certification route, looking at how companies could get certified and then use that to improve their supply chains. But I realized that it's a little bit of a one-size-fits-all approach for realities that are very different for farmers in different geographies, producing really different types of cacao. You know, the definition of a commodity, which is what cacao is typically traded as, is that one is exactly equal to the other. And so asphalt is a commodity. Corn is a commodity when it's used for biofuels, sure. But cacao is this incredible product. You know, it's a tropical fruit. It grows on these beautiful Dr. Seuss-looking trees. It's purple and orange and red. And it's a fruit that requires actually a pretty complex process to turn into a cacao bean and then an even more complex process to turn into chocolate. So um, when we're talking about chocolate, It's really, you know, one chocolate bar doesn't necessarily taste the same as another, and one cacao is definitely not the same as another. Fair trade, the way that it works, is not attached to flavor or quality at all. It works by tacking on a premium per metric ton to the commodity price. And that premium stays at the cooperative level when a 
cacao farmer uh, is working in a fair trade system, they're typically part of a cooperative. For some certifications, they have to be part of a cooperative. And then every single point throughout the supply chain has to be certified. And so a chocolate maker can only buy fair trade certified cacao if it's gone through a fair trade certified supply chain. Um, exporter, importer, intermediaries, they all have to be certified. And so I realized that that is a little bit extractive, actually, in terms of money being taken out of the supply chain that should be going to these five million farmers who are living on less than $2 a day. And so I had the feeling that we needed to create a solution. And I actually had a light bulb moment. I think that's what that's called. <laughs> the aha. The aha moment um, at my last job where I was doing socially responsible investing and working with a lot of companies on this. And I realized, you know, chocolate was super problematic. You know, there was all this media reports coming out. Fair trade clearly was a good solution in some cases, but maybe not in all. And I wanted to do something different. I wanted to work from the bottom up, from the farmer level up, to, to create a better solution. And, and I wanted it to be focused around quality. So I started to reach out to some chocolate makers who appeared to be doing interesting work uh, with cacao. At that point, this was back in 2010, there were really only a handful of what are called bean-to-bar chocolate makers. This is a new sector in the chocolate industry. And these are chocolate makers who buy cacao as a bean. Um, chocolate makers in the past were buying cocoa liquor or mass, kind of a processed product, and then turning that into chocolate. These new chocolate makers deeply value the cacao bean itself, and they want to do the whole process. It's like specialty coffee, kind of the third wave coffee. It's a foodie category. Totally, yeah. totally. And it's been growing gangbusters. Mm -hmm. So when we started in 2010, there were only 10 companies in the U.S. Now there are over 300 bean-to-bar chocolate makers in the U.S. So we started at just the right time for this kind of a supply chain focused on quality, focused on farmer impact so to be started. So if you could deliver a better bean to a specialty chocolate maker, you could get better incomes to the farmers themselves. Absolutely. And so we've been doing this now for six years. We have been doubling farmer income year over year, working with the supply chain. Um, we're working currently with 35 chocolate brands in the United States and Europe, from small neighborhood chocolate brands to Valrona, which is one of the world's largest specialty chocolate makers. And we have 100 chocolate makers on our waiting list. And what does this look like? I think one of the companies that Uncommon Cacao owns is Maya Mountain Cacao in Belize? That's correct. So what does that look like in Belize? So we run an operation that works with a network of over 400 indigenous Maya smallholder farming families. We run a buying circuit every week. We work with community organizers, essentially, in each of these areas that line up buying every week. We buy fresh cacao. So this was a major innovation we brought to the market in Belize. Um, when we arrived in Belize, farmers were selling fermented and dried cacao. So they were doing this two-week complex process themselves. It was this, it's, cacao fermentation is very hot, it's very stinky, and it requires a lot of cacao to be pulled together in a mass in, one, in a fermentation box in order for it to reach a good quality. Fermentation is critical for turning this fruit into a bean that can be turned into great chocolate. So each farmer was doing their own fermentation, and then they were drying cacao out um, in the sun, when there was sun, uh, on like a tarp or a piece of roofing. And then they had to pay to load that cacao onto a bus, bring it to a buying depot, try and sell it at the buying depot, which is you know one to three hours away from their homes. Uh, if they couldn't sell it because it wasn't dry enough, because it was raining, or because the fermentation wasn't done right, they had to pay to bring it back on the bus, take it to their community, and try and sell it to their neighbors. So. Um, that was super problematic for farmers and it did not create a lot of momentum or incentives to keep farming cacao. 
So what we did was we, we created a new system, and we did this after meeting with farmers for months and getting a lot of great feedback from them on what they wanted um, in a cacao supply chain. So we send out trucks every week. We buy from all of the farmers, and then we bring it to our centralized processing facility. So we have total traceability, total control over flavor and quality, total consistency, and because of that, we're able to get a much higher price in the market. So the company itself raised some capital to get going. You have a partner, as I understand. Yeah, so um, I started, so I, as I was saying, I reached out to chocolate makers mm -hmm. who were doing interesting things, and one of them was Alex Whitmore from Taza Chocolate. Taza's um, based in Boston, incredible company. They've been around uh, one of the longest uh, living bean-to-bar companies. And How does it taste? Oh, it's so good. It's really good chocolate. <laughs> I mean, I like all chocolate, but <laughs> Taza's is really good. It's different. You know, Taza did this thing where they introduced Mexican-style chocolate to the U.S. market, so it's kind of gritty. Mm -hmm. It's really unprocessed, but they're in every major Whole Foods. They're in every Whole Foods uh, region. They're in most grocery stores. They're everywhere. Um, and so they, like, kind of reinvented chocolate for the public. And I think that's really what's happening here overall is chocolate is becoming something different to the American consumer. We're not going for the Hershey bar or the M&Ms anymore. We're, like, really taking a second to think about, wow, I have so many more options now. Why don't I try some of them? So Whitmore saw what you were doing. So Whit Alex actually was already doing really interesting work. He was, uh, started the first ever direct trade program. So he was directly meeting farmers, buying from them based on quality and paying them a better price. He was only doing this in the Dominican Republic at the time, but was really interested in buying cacao from other places. But as a chocolate maker, he didn't have the time or the ability to go start a company in another place or find the cooperative or, or whatever it might be. And so uh, I serendipitously arrived in his office as a, a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, 25-year-old community organizer and chocolate fanatic and um, heard kind of his frustration on the sourcing side, you know, both with the traditional fair trade certification route, his experiences with that, uh, his excitement working directly with farmers and teaching them about quality. And so he gave me some money and I took it and went to Belize and started a company. You know, originally the idea was we would be supplying Taza chocolate and we're now supplying a lot more chocolate makers. So the idea with, with Belize was that it was this great cacao, it had so much potential, but because of that failed market structure I described earlier was like, just farmers were unmotivated, and there, were, there was no exporting to the U.S. happening at all. At that time, actually, nowhere in Central America was exporting cacao to the U.S., which to me was crazy because it's so close. It has so much history, so much rich genetics. The flavor profile of these Central American cacao beans is excellent and diverse. And so, yeah, I started in Belize in 2010. So there's something that uh, entrepreneurs and investors call the Valley of Death or the mm. Pioneer Gap or many other names. of you, you, you get a great idea. You might even find an early backer like you did. Your, your company actually uh, proves out, out a model, but you can't get capital to grow and expand. Did you hit that valley of death? A couple times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's like a roller coaster. In so many ways, entrepreneurship is a roller coaster. But on the financing side, I think that's especially the case. We have been lucky to be working with a number of chocolate makers who have provided capital. So um, that's definitely something that I talk to other entrepreneurs about, is looking at your market as a potential investor. I think we don't do that enough. Um, so I raised capital from Taza Chocolate, um, Lake Champlain Chocolate, Dandelion Chocolate in San Francisco, all are actually owners of the company. But in 2012, 2013, you know, we had reached a point in Belize where we were 
the largest exporter in the country. We were doing 60% of the country's annual production of cacao. We were working with a growing number of brands in the US, but our wait list was also growing. So we were, as the first mover in this kind of unique cacao supply chain industry, we were the first people that new chocolate makers would call. And they all wanted Belizean cacao, cacao, because it was starting to win awards. It was so delicious. They had never heard of a company that did this kind of thing before, and they were so excited. And I hated saying no. It was so frustrating to be like, ugh. And I knew that there were so many cacao farmers out there. And so I decided it's time to grow. And we also, you know, we're starting to have cash flow problems because we weren't yet at profitability. We were um, trying to expand as fast as we could to, to supply this market. So I decided to do um, the Agora Partnerships Accelerator, which is based in Nicaragua. It's an incredible organization. It's been helpful to me in so many ways. But as part of the accelerator, um, you do a retreat, an entrepreneur retreat in Nicaragua. And John Kohler came to that retreat. And this was a turning point in my entrepreneurial experience. And just for the audience, John Kohler is a professor, I believe, at the University of Santa Clara in California. And he has uh, thought quite a lot about these problems that entrepreneurs face through Global Social Benefit Incubator and other uh, entities that he's involved with. and had a kind of interesting structure that he developed the, that, that you guys became the, the guinea pigs for. We did. We did. Yeah. And I heard him talk about it. I think it was one of the first times he, to- he spoke publicly about it at that retreat. Um, it was a cool retreat because there were both entrepreneurs and investors there. And so it was a unique forum for sharing challenges, opportunities, ideas, kind of like the opportunity collaboration. So John Kohler was talking about this new structure, which he was calling the demand dividend. Uh, we later decided with lawyers to call it the variable payment obligation. And basically, what excited me about the demand dividend was that it was a way to bring in capital at this critical time without needing to sell equity, which I wasn't ready to do yet. We were still a small company in Belize. I still hadn't really figured out our scaling strategy. There was no exit in sight. And I also really liked that the repayment of it, so it was a loan, but it was, the repayment was based off of free cash flow. So as an agricultural business, if we had a bad season or if we had a great season, we could repay the loan based on essentially our bottom line um, of how, how the company was doing. So it's a loan. It lets you invest in new equipment, new, more suppliers, uh, the stuff you have to buy at the early part of the season that you don't get paid exactly. for until the end of the season, mm-hmm. and lets the repayments be calibrated to the revenues and not even the revenues, the free cash flow. Free cash flow, bottom line. Bottom line. Yeah. Can you tell us how much you raised and what you did with it? Yeah, so we raised $200,000 from a syndicate of investors led by the Elios Foundation. And I met Jim Villanueva at that retreat as well, um, as well as Alexandra Koch and Pomona Impact and um, a number of other investors who came in. So we use that capital in a lot of really uh, exciting ways. We've grown a lot since we took that in. It's almost amazing to think back on that moment. I remember holding a meeting with my staff after the money landed in our bank account and charting out kind of the next couple of years and how we plan to use the capital. And we used it primarily in Belize to expand our network of farmers, to improve our quality processing, to improve our marketing and our sales approach. Um, And then we also used it excitingly to expand into a new country. So that's another company that you formed. Yep. So because the demand dividend came into Uncommon Cacao, Um, Although it was originally touted as kind of the Maya Mountain Cacao investment that was our best-known brand, um, it did come into Uncommon Cacao, which is a holding company for Maya Mountain. And um, so we were able to use the capital both in Belize and 
then to start this other company, which is called Cacao Verapaz. It's in Guatemala. Uh, we started in late 2013, and we're working with almost as many farmers already in Guatemala as we're working with in Belize, um, and doing just about the same amount of business uh, in terms of revenue. But we learned a lot from Maya Mountain. Our approach on the ground in Belize, you know, going to all these communities, picking up fresh cacao from all these farmers, is a lot of boots on the ground. It's fairly resource intensive. We have a lot of staff, and we got a lot of operations. And I realized that our real value to many of the chocolate makers that we work with and to many of the farmers is actually being as efficient as possible so that we can pass on as high of a price as possible to the farmers. So in Guatemala, our model is a little bit different. We work with, um, we've tapped into existing community associations, cooperatives, um, and private farms that have the potential to produce a really high quality cacao, but don't have the knowledge, sometimes don't have the skills, don't have the training, um, don't have the infrastructure to be able to do it. So rather than us controlling 100% of the uh, processing ourselves, we provide intensive training to organizations to do it themselves. Um, and we partner with other organizations on the ground in Guatemala, like Funda Sistemas, for example, which is uh, an NGO, a local NGO in Guatemala that provides training to associations and cooperatives on accountability, accounting, governance, strengthens organizations, and so we'll bring them in. Um, we'll bring in uh, conservation-focused NGOs to support organic certification and others. And this has allowed us to scale much faster in Guatemala while maintaining the same quality, the same transparency, and the same impact. So scaling faster means, uh, as you said, more impact more quickly, presumably uh, income to farmers more quickly, but exactly. also I would guess your uh, investors thought it might mean repayment more quickly since it's a variable payment obligation. Yeah, so. yeah exactly. And so, so did you pay them back? So we had a two-year holiday to repay. We're actually due for our first payment in December, but we are converting it. What does that mean? So it's exciting. As I mentioned before, we were not ready to take on equity when I first raised the capital, but now we are, and we're actually in the middle of a Series A. So I've been working with a CFO that I brought on about 10 months ago to prepare the company for our next phase of growth. And it's in line with the kind of trend of iteration and becoming more efficient, but also scaling our impact faster. There's a lot of farmers out there. There's a lot more chocolate makers out there now than there were before. For us to capture this opportunity and create the global change that I sought to create from the beginning, we have to figure out how to bring this model to more farmers faster. And so we are now um, in the process of launching a US-based import distribution and brokerage business, which is going to be able to work with a lot of other cooperatives, local entrepreneurs, and other suppliers in other countries um, to bring them into the supply chain, creating training opportunities. We're actually working with the industry to harmonize quality standards for the first time in specialty cocoa, uh, which is a really exciting, critical step that we need to do. But as a result, we need more capital. And we started talking with the demand dividend investors about this about a year and a half ago, kind of talking about, okay, how do we make decisions about whether to keep money going back into investing in the company, if investors were excited about the idea of participating in equity, now that we had proven out our model, kind of treating the demand dividend almost as a convertible note. And they were really excited. So they were thrilled about our growth. They were, and I hope I'm not speaking on behalf of them, but from you know, the conversations we've had with them, they think they've been really uh, excited to be a part of this journey, and they want to continue that. So we are in the middle of the Series A, and as a part of that, the demand dividend will be converting. 
So here's a question that also comes up with a lot of entrepreneurs uh, and social entrepreneurs that become successful and then attract uh, investment and you have a growing market and a good model, but how do you know that you're not just going to become another chocolate buyer in the States uh, looking for the best chocolate at the lowest price and, you know, the farmers be damned in the end? Totally. Yeah, it's, it's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. So mission is a, obviously a critical part of who we are. We would not be successful in our market if we were not farmer-focused and if we were not proving our impact. Not only because that's important to consumers, it's important to chocolate makers, but because we would be losing farmers if we were not paying them a fair price and if they didn't want to stay with cacao um, and if they didn't want to sell to us. So um, it's something we've thought about a lot. We actually brought on Morgan Simon of Pie Investments, uh, and Transform Finance, who has been working with us for years. She was also part of the Demand Dividend. And she has been, she actually came down to Belize to work with our team about a year ago on how do we create long-term, essentially, controls around ownership, around sharing of benefits, around impact. And we've created structures that include profit sharing within the different companies so that as we grow the import uh, company in the U.S., that profit will also be going down to farmers at origin. We have made a decision that we're going to incorporate as a B Corp, a legal B Corp. Um, we're doing a transition now in, as part of the Series A, a legal transition where we used to be an LLC. And so we want to write our mission into who we are as a company. You know, I think we actually are different than some social enterprises in that we do now have potential for an exit. Um, there are headlines in the Wall Street Journal. There was just one in Euromonitor a couple weeks ago saying that chocolate companies are looking at getting closer to their supply chains, and they're actually starting to snatch up suppliers. So there is, you know, a possibility that we could be acquired, and I think that's different than many social enterprises. So, and there's a number of other potential strategic acquirers out there. One of the reasons we've been able to scale so quickly is that I've um, kind of worked myself out of a job everywhere that we build companies. So in Belize, there's a managing director uh, that I work with, but I'm not involved at all in the day-to-day. -day. In Guatemala, same thing. In the U.S., it's going to be the same thing. And so my job really is kind of managing and coordinating and growing the company. Um, and I think to have done that kind of so rapidly is something that is really important for us. But it also shows that as an entrepreneur, I see the next 60 years ahead of me of the work that I need to do to transform the chocolate supply chain. I see radical changes that have to happen, not only in kind of on the farmer level, but also on the consumer level, on the logistics side and the intermediary side. I have a lot of work to do, and so I want to be able to kind of keep doing that. And so it's exciting for investors to hear that as well, because it shows that this is really a big picture vision, and I want to build a company that can handle that big picture vision um, and that can, you know, leverage the resources and partners we need to leverage to get there. That's terrific. Did I hear you say you had a 60-year plan? Uh, I kind of do. It's weird. I have, like, every decade, I kind of know what the big thing is in my mind that I want to get done that decade. So we can check back with you in 2075 and see whether you got there? I look forward to it. All right. Welcome back then in 2075. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, David. It's really been a pleasure. Fun. Thank you. Bye-bye.
Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. If you like the show, subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts these days. And be sure to leave a rating and even a comment. It really helps other people discover the show. If you don't like the show, maybe keep it to yourself. Kidding, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us an email at info at impactalpha.com, tweet at us at impactalpha, or leave a comment on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash impactalpha. To keep up to date on the Impact Investing Marketplace, be sure to visit and subscribe to our newsletter at impactalpha.com. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Thanks, Isaac. In New York, I'm Brian Walsh. On behalf of David Bank and Imogen Rose Smith, thanks for listening to Returns on Investment. Until next time. Thank you.